I want you to uh, imagine for a moment. Imagine this. All your life, you've been blind. You've begged at the temple your entire adult life. And now a man has come to you, asked you if you'd like to see. And miraculously, he's given you sight. But by the time you manage to get over the shock of seeing light for the first time, he's gone. Obviously, you're overjoyed. You can't stop talking about it. You can't stop talking about him, the man who's done what nobody else could. You hear his name is Jesus. And so you keep talking about this man named Jesus. Surely he was from God. But instead of praising God, the temple rulers spot you and they restrain you. They denounce you and they mock you and they call you a liar. They expel you from the temple. Suddenly, what's important in life suddenly seems to, to be upended. You can see now, but you have no temple, no access to God. This paradox is, is bittersweet. You're healed, but you're a social and spiritual outcast. Well, John 10 follows immediately after the healing of the man born blind. And after this man has been kicked out of the temple, Jesus finds him wandering around outside the temple. He's been evicted by the Pharisees from the grounds. And they've rejected this blind man because he challenged their authority. And ironically, it's this healed, formerly blind man who gets to see who Jesus really is. And so John 9 ends with this miracle serving as an entree to yet another confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in the book of John. If you've been with us in John for, for a bit this year, you'll notice that this pattern repeats itself over and over again. Jesus performs a sign followed by teaching and a confrontation. Each time the radical nature and authority of Jesus' words poured out in judgment on the authorities turn away those who are excited to follow him as a miracle worker. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. In giving a blind man's sight, Jesus was testing the crowd and the Pharisees whether they really saw who he was. He was pushing them to see him as more than a miracle worker, more than a prophet. In fact, he would call God his father, and by implication declare that he was God's son. But they refused. Looking to justify themselves, the Pharisees asked, What? Are we blind too? And so Jesus says, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. But because of their hardness of heart in believing what Jesus was doing in front of their very eyes, he tells them a parable to judge and redirect them. We looked at the bigger picture of the Bible. What Jesus does is following the pattern of the Old Testament prophets. In speaking to a rebellious Israel, God would send his prophets time and time again to perform a sign, followed by an oracle, judgment, or prophecy. And like the prophets of old, Jesus uses his sign as a prelude to speaking words of judgment against Israel's leaders. Here he delivers it in the form of a parable. And that's where our story of a shepherd and his sheep come in. 
But what we need to know this morning is that this image is not new. It's a word picture that's taken straight out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, God judges the leaders of Israel who've been exiled to Babylon. And he does so by characterizing them as shepherds who are corrupt, self-serving, and harsh. He judges them and foretells a day when God himself would appoint a shepherd over his people to bring them as one flock under one shepherd. If you thought today we'd be speaking about cuddly sheep, you'd be mistaken. John 10 isn't about fluffy sheep and how the shepherds curl up to share their warmth in night. Instead, John 10 is a harsh word to bad shepherds. And in their place, Jesus points to himself as the good shepherd whose shepherdhood is good for the sheep. And so the big idea is clear today. If Jesus brings us into God's pasture, then he is the good shepherd whom we must follow. We'll see that first, we must follow the shepherd and not the thief. Second, we must follow Jesus because he is the gate through whom the sheep enter. Third, he is the good shepherd who owns and cares for the sheep. And finally, we'll see that we must follow Jesus because he is God's shepherd. So first, the shepherd or the thief, who do you follow? Jesus begins by laying out for the Pharisees this word picture. The elements are very simple. A sheep pen, a thief, a shepherd, a gate, and of course, the sheep. To the Jewish era, it's the familiar setting of, of a Jewish shepherd tending to their sheep. And in Jesus' day, they were considered lowly. But for all of Israel's history, shepherds have been the image of the kings and spiritual leaders of the people. Moses was called from being a shepherd to leading the people of God. David, the prototypical king of Israel, was a shepherd boy tending his father's flocks. And God himself is pictured as shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, verse 12, God says, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, can you please um, forward this slide for me? As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. God uses shepherding as an activity to distinguish between the shepherd and the thief. And the intent of this is to show that the shepherd is the legitimate ruler of the flock and the thief is a false one. Let's look at the thief. He doesn't enter by the gate. He climbs in another way. He is a stranger to the sheep who doesn't recognize his voice nor follow him. And in comparison, the shepherd enters by the gate. He's recognized by the gatekeeper. He's responded to by his sheep. And they follow him because they know his voice. What we see here is that the shepherd is recognized. He is legitimate. He has the right to call to his sheep and lead them out. One of my weekly joys is going to preschool to pick up at pick-up time. And usually the four-year-olds at about three o'clock are sitting around their teacher and they're engrossed in a, a storytelling time. But the moment that I or any other adult or parent walks into the door, all of the children look back. And they're looking back to check if they can recognize the adult who has just walked in. They're looking to see if it's their mummy or daddy who's come to pick them up. And the instant that little one, my little one recognizes me, runs towards me, and breaks into his smile, my heart melts. Just as the children recognize their parents, the sheep know 
their shepherd's voice. They follow him as he would have whistled to them at the gate. And he leads those who belong to him and they follow. It's a picture of loving care and obedient following. This idyllic scene is not the way things are or were. Jesus is directing this story at the Pharisees. Remember how the section begins. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees. He's responding to their stubborn refusal to see through his miraculous healing of the blind man. See through that to see that he is from God. And ironically, they fail to notice the elements of their situation in this story. Have a look at the parallels. Just like the sheep who didn't acknowledge the stranger's voice, the blind man does not acknowledge the religious leader's authority. But when Jesus revealed his identity to the man, he worshipped Jesus. In contrast, in casting the healing, a healed man out of the temple, the, the Pharisees drove him away like a sheep. The man is running away from, a strange, from strangers. But Jesus, when he appeals to him to come to the presence of the Son of Man, the healed man comes to him right away. How does Jesus use this picture of shepherding to judge the Pharisees? Jesus is implying that like the thief, the robber and stranger, the Pharisees were not recognized by the sheep. They were false shepherds, the illegitimate rulers of Israel. And this would have infuriated them. It would have gnawed away at their status and their sense of entitlement as guardians of God's law, as the center of power in the temple system. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God also spoke against the leaders of Israel in exile, calling them shepherds, but not in a good way. Ezekiel 34 verse 2 says, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Instead of looking after the sheep, the rulers are accused of literally fleecing them. They clothe themselves with their wool and eat them. They don't heal the sick or bind the injured. They don't bring back the strays or seek the lost. They rule harshly and brutally. And so the sheep are scattered. These shepherds, these leaders of Israel, do what thieves and robbers do. They act in self-interest and neglected those they lead. Now it's easy for us to think at this point, what? Are we thieves and robbers too? Like the Pharisees, we want to justify ourselves. We're drawn not to the role of the villain, but to the role of the hero, the shepherd. In fact, we think we suit that role. It's noble, it's strong, it's honourable. But that's precisely how the Pharisees thought of themselves too. They saw themselves as the hero shepherd who were legitimate and who served the people with their religion and deserved to receive honour. But in reality, they were self-interested for power, for wealth and for man's praise. The treatment of the healed blind man confirms this. They weren't concerned about the well-being of one of their sheep. And they certainly were not concerned about the God of the Sabbath who works every day to bring restoration. So what are we really concerned about, all of us who dream of being the hero in the story? Are we concerned about our status, perhaps our work or ministry and leadership? What about the tingle of man's praise in our ears? Are we interested in influencing others and promoting ourselves to achieve our ends? Because if we are, we ironically make ourselves like the thieves, and false shepherds in Jesus' parable. 
You see, our rightful role in this story is first and foremost as sheep. Before desiring to be a shepherd, we must follow a good shepherd. So the simple question we're asked first up in this short parable is, who do you follow? Often we talk about idols like wealth and status and and comfort and fame, but we speak of them as things. We talk about them as depersonalized ideas, disconnected from the fact that when we desire these things, we're most often actually following a person. Who is it that we're following, leading us to these idols? Do you follow thieves and robbers who are driven by a thirst to take from their followers time, wealth, energy, and affection? Who, not what, is it that bewitches us and holds our attention? Because in worshipping an idol, we want to become someone, not something. Brothers and sisters, Jesus and not the thief, is the one we must follow because he leads us into pasture. And that's the next point. Second, we must follow Jesus because he's the gate through whom we enter into pasture. Verse 6 says the Pharisees were unable to understand. And so Jesus has to continue to explain what he means in the first parable. But lest we get ahead of ourselves, we have to admit it's confusing. It's confusing because in verse 7, Jesus says he's the gate, and then in verse 9 and 11, he says he's the good shepherd. So which one are you, Jesus? Are you the gate or are you the good shepherd? Well, he's both. And he's how? If we were to read the scenario in verses 1 to 5 and expect that Jesus is going to explain how everything fits, we'd be right to be confused because that's not what he's doing. In fact, Jesus is using that parable to draw out essential details of good shepherding. And in particular, he's honing in on two images, the image of the gate and the image of the good shepherd. So first, let's look at the gate. The gate is the only way to enter into pasture, the pasture that is full of luscious, good food that sheep need for for life and nourishment. And that pasture is salvation and abundant life. Jesus says in verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So first we see that the gate is the entryway to salvation. Salvation is the place of safety and it's the way of escape. These are two contrasting concepts, but they're really two sides of the same coin. We desire a place of safety and we get there by escaping a place of danger. Because Jesus is the gate, he is the way to this place. It's a place foreshadowed yet again by Ezekiel in chapter 34 Verse 10 and 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I've personally never been to an escape room and frankly I don't want to. The idea of being stuck in a room trying to find a hidden code with 10 other panicking people just doesn't appeal to me. Just even thinking about it makes me anxious and claustrophobic. But the situation reminds me of the time I got stuck in a lift in my parents' place. Uh, The moment I went inside, I tried to push the buttons and nothing would light up. I tried to push the open door and no, no, it wouldn't respond. And for some bizarre reason, some security feature of the lift meant that I needed a key pass in order to push any of the buttons. And in that moment, I felt a wave of panic. 
I began to wonder where I'd be found. Maybe I'd faint. Maybe I'd starve to death in this lift. No one know, would know about me. And thankfully, my parents were expecting me, and I could give them a call, and so they, they could start the lift and open the door and let me out. In some way, Jesus being the gate is a bit like that key pass, isn't it? Those with the key pass can get inside. Otherwise, you might be stuck and need rescuing. And we may not like to admit it, but life is a bit like being a sheep trapped in a maze. Only it's a maze of our own making. When we find ourselves feeling lost and vulnerable in life's mess, we have to think about the kind of place we live in. We live in God's world, which has been mucked up by humanity because of sin. That attitude of rebellion and disobedience to God. And so as part of a fallen humanity, we find ourselves locked outside of God's presence. On some level, it's for our good that we're locked out, because in his holy and pure presence, we'd be burned up. But this has meant facing death and decay. Even though we continue to live in God's world, his presence is blocked from us. In the story of Adam and Eve, the first couple were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and after their disobedience and sent away from God's presence. They could no longer walk freely in and out of the garden and no longer had intimate personal access to God. Where the entrance was, there now was an angelic being with a flaming sword. Cut off from the source of life, they faced certain death. Exposed to the dangers of a fallen world, they live in constant fear for their lives. This too is the world we live in, isn't it? A world of certain death and constant threat on our lives and livelihoods. Fortunate is the person who doesn't have to think about changing jobs at some time in their life to stay employed. The workplace is a constant jostle for ascendance and attention. We consume reality TV, which is like a gladiatorial sport these days, where contestants publicly humiliate each other and tear each other's reputations down. I don't care whether the subject matter is interior design, surviving in the wild, or romantic relationships. The premise is the same. Life is a fight. Let the strongest win. Where can we go to find lasting relief? Ezekiel 34, verse 25, offered hope to the exiled Israelites in what God would do. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. Friends, we need Jesus as the gate through whom we must pass in order to find the safety of God's pasture. Second, the gate is the only entryway to life abundant. Not only is the gate the way out, of, uh, out into safety, it's the way into life abundant. Look at verse 10 with me of John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Whereas the thief comes to harm the sheep, take life, wreak havoc, Jesus offers life. He offers something that heals the sheep, that nourishes them, that gives life and enriches it. When we go back to the promise of God in Ezekiel 34, 14, I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Many of us in urban Australia are oblivious to the drought conditions the farmers of rural New South Wales are facing. Some of them, most 
dramatic and heartbreaking images circulating around the internet of dried ground and starving, dying sheep. In some cases, farmers who can't afford to keep their stock have considered the heavy decision of shooting dead their animals. Imagine having to choose 100, 200, maybe 1,000 head of cattle and sheep to shoot dead because you can't afford to keep them. The sense of helplessness and frustration and the sheer hardness of the land, sun and the sky. Our farmers know better than most what it means to live day to day at the mercy of wind, rain and heat. During a rural rotation, I once accompanied a farmer back to his property and he had failing kidneys and a failing heart and a drive to town that took three hours. But he was a quiet mountain of a man. He was in his late 70s and picked up bales of hay like he was picking up stacks of foam rollers. I remember our conversations were slow and soft. His answers were short and to the point. And I was stuck, struck most by his stoicism, his imperviousness to what was going on around him and inside of him. I should have asked him what, was, what it was that kept him going. Because while many face this life with stoicism, many more struggle and crumble in its weight. And even though our urban lives seem feather light compared with that, don't we long for some hope that would abate the vanity of our lives? Let's have a think about what we deal with day to day. There's work that comes to an end. There's money that runs out. Relationships that reveal the best and worst of humans. The constancy of social media that seems to fail to meet the needs of our boredom. When Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, he means eternal, creative, unending life. Life that gives and keeps giving. Life that has as its prime concern the, pri the, the display of God's creative and generating beauty. Whereas the thief steals, kills and destroys, Jesus promises life that gives itself away, enlivens and creates. A life that weans us off from those things we think we need for life. Brothers and sisters, we need to follow Jesus, who is the gate through whom we enter the, follow, the full life. But there's more. After the gate, Jesus draws a second picture of good shepherding. And in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the one we must follow because he is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And the contrast here is between another minor villain, the hired hand, and the good shepherd. In Jesus' day, the shepherd often had assistant shepherds, those who were hired to help with the flocks. And Jesus points to the difference in quality of their shepherding, which has profound consequences for their sheep. As a junior doctor training in various roles, it was easy to think that my responsibilities were limited because someone higher up would always bear the responsibility. A senior colleague once wisely said, Trainees don't understand what it's all about until they have to sign their name on the dotted line. That's right. The bosses, the consultants, the managers, the ministry leader, or even the pastor, whoever is responsible, that person cares about the work. They may care about it because they own the business or because their reputation rests on it. They may care about it because the value of their work is so closely tied to their idea of worth. But come what may, they will bear the cost. If something goes right, the boss rightly gets the credit. If something goes wrong, 
the boss bears the hit for the team. Pointing to himself, Jesus says he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This is the first and the most important quality of good shepherding. In contrast to the hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep, the shepherd owns the sheep. They belong to him. And so when the situation arises that a wolf appears, the hired hand runs away. He doesn't defend the sheep. Instead, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. On the other hand, a good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Not many people would lay down their lives for anything or anyone these days. But every time I'm on call for the hospital I work at, I get to witness a little bit of something that reflects this laying down. At our hospital, we do kidney and liver transplants. And often these organs are donated by people who have died and indicated that they desire to donate their organs. Or at other times, the organ may have come from a living relative who is willing to donate their kidney. My job is to use imaging to make sure that the transplanted organs are are functioning well after major transplant surgery. And with the ultrasound, we can hear and we can see the sight and sound of blood whooshing through a person's own blood vessels into this transplanted organ. This, in our day and our time, is one way I see people laying down a little bit of their lives for others. But the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So let that sink in for a moment. Many of us would agree, even if we deeply believe about animal rights, that the death of an animal is not equivalent to the death of a human. Very often, shepherds would have had to defend their sheep from attack. But the good shepherd does what is beyond expectation. The good shepherd pays a human life for the creature's life. By identifying as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, Jesus tells of his willingness to die for ungodly humans because of his deep love in order to rescue them from death. Secondly, we have to recognize that this statement is bound to the shepherd's knowledge of his sheep. In fact, their lives were knitted to his life. This closeness of life and living is emphasized when Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. There's an intimate knowledge between the carer and the cared for. It's a deep dynamic of love and obedience. It's one that Jesus characterizes as a relationship that he has with his father and himself. And that's an amazing truth. The relationship between Jesus and his disciples is like the deep bond between God the Father and God the Son. And I want to ask you this morning whether this is the way you've envisioned your relationship with Jesus as love and obedience. Because in the scheme of guilt and innocence, where our sins are taken away and we're no longer guilty, we often say that we've been freed from sinning. And that's true. But we can be freed from sinning and still not operate out of a relationship of love and obedience to Jesus. This image of the good shepherd sets straight for us what the fundamental meaning of being a disciple of Jesus is. It is to obediently follow a saviour who has loved us by dying for us. It is to grow in obedience by observing how the son obeys the father who loves him without end. It is to act in obedience to the call of the good shepherd. Finally here, Jesus is the good shepherd because he gathers all of his sheep. 
In John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The shepherd gathers all those who belong to him from different sheep pens. And once again, this is not a new thought. God's plan for his scattered people was to gather them. Ezekiel 34, 13 says, I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. And here when Jesus speaks of gathering from other sheep pens, he is hinting at the ingathering of all those who belong to him all over the world. God's global vision of building his flock is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multinational. This morning, brothers and sisters and friends, the fact that we sit here and even speak of Jesus is evidence of that plan in action. God's plan from ages past is in full swing, even as Jesus has called us from different nations and backgrounds, families and places to obey him. God's people are being gathered from every tribe, nation and tongue to come under the good shepherdhood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. To obey, to love, and together. This is the call of our chief shepherd. And I want to speak for a moment to those of us who carry positions of leadership and responsibilities, particularly in our church context. Because we can learn a huge amount here from Jesus' shepherding. In fact, some scholars have said that the good shepherd could be translated as the model shepherd. It is good not only in the sense of being morally whole and perfect, but in the sense of it being the ideal model. I think that Jesus says this deliberately because his final instructions to his lead disciple, Peter, is feed my sheep. In other words, he calls Peter, after he has returned to Jesus, to do as he has done for his sheep. He calls Peter to be willing to care for his sheep, to defend his sheep, to be willing to die for his sheep. And these words fall heavy on Christians, especially leaders. But I think the rule that Jesus brings out in this word picture of the good shepherd is, Number one, don't leave your sheep. Number two, don't leave your sheep. Number three, don't leave your sheep. For a time and season, God has given you a flock to tend under his steady and sovereign hand. Let us not prove ourselves to be hired hands who abandon their sheep, but followers of the good model shepherd who would not leave his sheep, who would not rest until he found the last lost sheep and who would even go to his death for his sheep to give them life. What does that look like? It speaks to the sacrificial nature of shepherding in the Christian church, doesn't it? It speaks to the enormous giving up of time and energy and effort of mental and emotional energy and anguish which the sheep may not even deserve. Many of us are tired, struggling in our shepherding. Sheep are heavy and don't always turn. Sheep need carrying and some need dragging. Others need pushing and some even bite back. But brothers and sisters who lead others in Christ, persevere and don't give up. Because of Jesus' great love for us, we follow in his footsteps. He who has completed his work already of defeating sin and freeing us to live in his power is with us in his spirit to shepherd his flock. But for us to survive as people who follow Jesus in love and obedience and lead others to do so, we must return to the truth. The truth that in Jesus we have a good shepherd who is God's shepherd. 
And that truth is anchored in Ezekiel uh, 34, 23, where God says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. Jesus, the son of David and the son of God, would come himself to tend to God's sheep. And it's in the loving obedience and commitment of Jesus that we see his good and godly shepherdhood. First, he, sees, he says that God the Father loves him because he willingly lays down his life. John 10, 17. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus performs his shepherding duties in willing obedience to God. And so God the Father bestows his love on the Son. Let's dwell on that for a moment. Parents know the joy of receiving obedience. Nothing gladdens the heart of a parent more than to have their love reciprocated by obedience. Doing what our parents desire and their love for us is a powerful, strengthening agent for our relationships. Now, I'm not saying that all love is perfect because there's love that causes fear and anxiety and there's love that leads to bitterness and resentment and there's love that suffocates and chokes. But there is a love where children are released to obey of their own will in desire to honour their parent. And that's the manner of love Jesus and his heavenly Father has, the kind of perfect love God the Father has for his Son who, who obeys willingly even to death. And here's an explicit foretelling by Jesus that he would come to lay down his life and then rise again in order to rescue sheep from death and destruction as commanded by the Father. But willingness doesn't come on its own. It, Jesus does so with authority. He lays down his life with authority and he picks it up again with authority. Jesus has been commissioned for this task. He is authorized by God the Father in his shepherdhood. And so slowly... Throughout this entire explanation, Jesus has been working towards these statements, that his shepherdhood is an appointment from his heavenly Father. It comes out of a dynamic of love and obedience that is between God the Father and God the Son. This morning, you and I are loved and saved in Christ Jesus, not because God loves us only, although that's certainly true, but firstly because God loves his Son and has sent him to share it. We're invited in, as Christ's sheep, his people, to share in the Father's love. So finally, how are we to respond to the Good Shepherd's call? The fundamental question we come back to this morning is, who do you follow? Are you following a hired hand or the Good Shepherd? Have you given your allegiance to someone who is unwilling to defend you, ready to leave you to the wolves? Or are you assured that you have one who has died for you even before you knew him? Jesus is that person. Remember, before you even uttered a word or prayed a prayer, he died for you. Jesus declares with authority and power that he is the gate, the entryway to salvation and abundant life. Jesus says he is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep by never leaving them and dying for them. And when it came to the Jews, they were divided. Some said he was raving mad and others couldn't get over the fact that he did this miraculous sign. As long as we sit in judgment of Jesus' words rather than under his word, we won't understand how we must respond. Because if we say, what? Are we blind too? Are we thieves and hired hands as well? Then we've said that we're shepherds who have been unable or unwilling to carry out our duty. But if we say that we're his sheep, then here's the promise that God has given. You are my sheep. The sheep of my pasture. 
and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. The only way, brothers and sisters, to know this in reality, that God is our shepherd, is to follow Jesus as the good shepherd in love and obedience.